MSW Media. The January 6th committee has uncovered a lot of explosive evidence. And it sure looks like the Justice Department and the Fulton County District Attorney are investigating the scheme to overturn the 2020 election. So will Donald Trump face criminal charges after all? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, an in-depth look at the topics that help us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. I'm usually joined by my friend, Betty Vasquez, but today I have another friend I'm bringing in. You know her very well, Asha Rangapa. Asha is a teacher at Yale University. She's also a former FBI counterintelligence agent. She's a lawyer, actually went to Yale Law School with me, and she's a great legal analyst who you've probably seen on MSNBC, CNN, uh, in all sorts of different outlets. And the two of us together are, are, are going to talk about the topic that so many of you have asked us to do a podcast on. A lot of you have asked me, what's going on with January 6th? What's going on with Donald Trump? Is he finally going to be held accountable, uh, to use the term many of you have used? This is a podcast where we're going to try to discuss that issue. I know it's on many of your minds. And just as a, as a bit of a preview, I, I do want to say, I know it's been some time since the last episode of On Topic. There's a reason for that. I've been you know, dealing with a lot in my personal life, and I'm using this as an opportunity to potentially reimagine the podcast. So I'm interested in your views. I'm interested in your feedback, which you can leave me on Twitter or Facebook. You could just hashtag On Topic. But also, I will just tell you, I, Asha is going to play a big part of those future plans, and that is why I have her here today. Thank you so much for joining me, Asha. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Renato. I'm really excited to get the band back together. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you are always, I think, uh, our listeners' favorite guests with good reason. Uh, and I have to say, I think both of us have been reacting recently to a lot of reports of what you know, DOJ has been up to or not been up to in the wake of the January 6th investigation. Yeah, there has been a lot of discussion and I think a lot of reasonable disagreement um, and, and speculation. And I think it's worth exploring because we're hearing a lot of really explosive things coming out of the January 6th committee. And I think trying to understand how that will translate into the criminal process is is challenging and it's very complex. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess, you know, what I would also say is, you know, what we have been hearing is something that's at least from published reports incongruent with what's going on in the January 6th committee. I, I do want to say for everyone's benefit, the, the listeners benefit here, obviously the January 6th committee is not a criminal investigation. It's a bunch of politicians who are um, investigating something that really could have been investigated, let's say, by an independent commission if the Republicans had agreed to that. But essentially what they're doing is they're trying to create a public record of these proceedings. They are trying to um, you know, make sure the public is aware of what happened. They're trying to get all the evidence out there. So it's in the public record. So we have a historical record of what happened. And in addition to that, 
I think there is a political motive for sure to make sure that it's apparent to the public why Donald Trump should never be president again. And I think that is combined with the potential goal of, you know, determining uh, whether or not there's sufficient evidence to send to the Justice Department to try to recommend criminal charges. Whereas the Justice Department is obviously um, a, an agency that is focused on criminal, you know, criminal enforcement in this in this context. And so, of course, they're going to have different goals. And I think it's fair to say that the way that the Justice Department approaches this matter is always going to be different than something like the January 6th committee. Yeah, Renato, I'll just jump in there and, you know, let's look historically at sort of where this, how this has played out in the past, right? Um, we have had, you know, in Iran-Contra, you had independent counsel Lawrence Walsh, and then you had the Tower Commission, who, which was investigating it from uh, the congressional standpoint. Um, with the Mueller investigation, you had the special counsel investigation, and then you had the Senate Intelligence Committee. And I think that, you know, these are really two different entities that are working in parallel and they can work, they can be complementary. They can also be in conflict um, depending on how well they're working together or not. But as you mentioned, they have very different goals. I mean, the Justice Department has to have a predicated investigation. They gather evidence. They determine whether or not that they're, whether there's enough evidence to charge someone with a crime and prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. That's what the Mueller report was about. And Congress, congressional committees are very expansive. As you mentioned, this is about educating the public. This is serving, be, acting as liaisons for the public to get information that otherwise the public won't and can't have. And so, you know, they're going to have a much broader aperture um, in terms of what they're able to bring and also what they're able to present because they're not dealing with things like admissibility issues. Uh, that a court of law, they're the ones who are making the determination of what's admissible. Um, so, you know, and then on the also, and, and you can speak to this, Renato, the Justice Department has very powerful investigative tools. Uh, Congress, because this is a separation of powers issue, is going to run into more roadblocks um, as they have. So I think understanding that everything that's coming out of the January 6th committee, I think there's a feeling, and I think this is, it feels intuitive that the Justice Department can just like pick it up and then walk into court and, you know, charge someone. It's it's not quite that seamless. Um, and in fact, right now, it appears that they seem to be at loggerheads a little bit. And I'm wondering what you think about that. Yeah. So first of all, I, could, I couldn't agree more that uh, definitely what you're seeing in the committee hearings is in some sense, it's almost like what I would see in a grand jury where it's like, hey, you just have the prosecution throwing in evidence without regard to whether it would be admissible in court. There's no other side present. And, you know, at least I will say in a grand jury context, of course, you're focused on statutes and charging. That's not even the case here. There's all sorts of evidence here that's, you know, interesting, right? Like whether or not um, the, uh, the president of the United States is throwing his food against the wall in anger. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's not clear always what the relevance is to a particular, um, you know, criminal statute, for example. But I will say that, you know, you mentioned loggerheads here. I mean, one thing that often happens in criminal investigations is you, you use the term parallel investigation. And that happened, that happens all the time in criminal cases where there's a, another investigation going on that's like a civil or an administrative investigation. You know, I used to investigate a lot of white, white collar crime when I was a federal prosecutor. 
And when I did that, the SEC or CFTC or some other agency, FTC, was investigating. Often they would go first or we would go in parallel, but often they would they would be kind of taking the first crack at, at, at a case. And then I would follow on more or less and I'd be lurking in the shadows. I might talk to the SEC attorneys behind the scenes. But, you know, they were the ones who were doing the initial interviews and that, that would have positives and negatives. I mean, sometimes it meant that people who wouldn't talk to my FBI agents uh, because they, for uh, understandable reasons, might talk uh, in a uh, civil deposition. It, but I'll, often it would lead to complications where things would get mucked up in the in the initial investigation and would complicate matters to the point where it would never turn into a criminal case. Here, you know, what, what we're seeing actually is the, you know, Adam Schiff, for example, has publicly stated he doesn't really think the DOJ is looking into this. And we just heard, you know, a recent report from the New York Times um, that, for example, Cassidy Hutchinson's explosive testimony, which so many of us, including you and I, Asha, have been talking about, uh, was a, a surprise to the Justice Department. They, did, they were jolted, uh, it was the word that the New York Times used, by some of her testimony, which they hadn't heard before. And, you know, it was interesting because the article also said that there had not really been much direct conversation within the Justice Department about Donald Trump's criminal liability, that it was almost like a verboten subject. And I thought that was really interesting. And it is apparent to me that in many ways, based on, if that's true, if the New York Times reporting is true, there's some very good reporters on that. You know, then what that suggests to me is that the, the in many ways, Congress is ahead of the Justice Department on this issue. And I think, you know, that could have implications. You mentioned the Oliver North example. That was actually a case in which Congress unwittingly provided immunity that ultimately undid Oliver North's criminal conviction. So there's definitely consequences that can come from the fact that Congress is going first. Yes. And I think especially that there's a danger of that, Renato, if Congress feels that there may not be another avenue for accountability. And they might say, listen, it's in our interest just to get as much out there as we can. And maybe we should give immunity to certain people so that they will come and they won't take the fifth and you know, um, say what they know. Uh, and as you noted, um, if, if DOJ is then trying to put together a case after that, it's gonna be very hard to untangle the evidence that they gather and and demonstrate to a court that it has nothing to do with what they testified uh, to Congress. And that's what happened with Oliver North and John Poindexter and, and their convictions got thrown out. Um, so my question to you is how much, why would, so one of the big issues here that's intention is the Justice Department claims you haven't been giving us transcripts of your depositions. and Congress has said, well, we don't have to. Like, this is our stuff. Um, and of course, that's sort of a one-way street because, you know, the Justice Department isn't going to give them, isn't going to give the committee their stuff. They're going to keep that under wraps. Um, so what do you make of, of that piece of it, that the committee hasn't been sharing what it knows with the Justice Department? Is that because they lose control over it and they have been worried about things leaking and getting out and perhaps um, stealing the thunder from these hearings, which, you know, are going to, um, which I think they've been very savvy about staging them and making them very, you know, episodic, sort of like streaming, you know, binging a series on Netflix. Yeah, they definitely have made a must must watch uh, TV. 
Uh, you know, it's interesting, Ash. It's something I've not commented on Twitter. I usually this is this is it's actually a good thing we have a, that we are doing this podcast because I usually on my podcast will you know give kind of my hunch or my thought on things that I'm not a hundred percent sure about, and that's where I am here. I mean, I think it could mean a number of things. You know, one is it could mean, as you suggest, that you know these are as I said before, these are politicians, and it really could be that they're like, hey, we we are putting all this work in and getting these witnesses. We don't want the FBI to run ahead of us now and you know interview this person that we're going to interview in two weeks or something like that. We want uh, we want to have the first crack at everything, and we want to release everything before anything goes you know goes to the Justice Department. They might also think that the Justice Department might make requests not to speak to certain people. Uh, or not to release certain information, which could then tie their hands. And at this point, the committee is like, hey, we're running with this. Um, so I don't know. It also, look, it also could just be, for example, I mean, there it does seem to be a, a sense that I think the committee is trying to force DOJ's hand. In other words, you know, I've read some reporting, and there is one point at which there is a discussion of whether or not the committee would make a criminal referral and a criminal referral is just basically like a letter to doj saying hey here's some criminal conduct you should look into it it can be useful when it's something that doj wouldn't otherwise know about like hey one of my constituents is the victim of fraud uh, you should look into this but you know in a case like this where uh, obviously the justice department is extremely aware of what's going on it, it's it's sort of an unnecessary po you know political letter but I, I think when that discussion came up, there one of the 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 discussion points that you heard, or what I what I saw in the media was some members of the committee. I think Liz Cheney were thinking, "Hey, this might help force the hand of DOJ." And so I almost think that they think and they're convinced, based on some of their statements, that they don't think DOJ is investigating this aggressively enough, and they think that if they are aggressive and just keep this themselves, they will, you know prod DOJ to act or force in some way DOJ's hand. And I think it's really interesting because that's a pretty rare circumstance that the Justice Department is exercising a lot of restraint uh, kind of um, and Congress is is out ahead in this way. Yes, I agree. And, you know, with the Mueller investigation, for example, there was clearly a lot of coordination happening um, between the two entities. <clears throat> so this is it's it's troubling and i think it kind of brings us to the next topic which you touched on which is you know the hutchinson testimony kind of jolting the justice department that reporting that they haven't really discussed trump's criminal liability and what you just noted that maybe the january 6th committee is trying to press um you know uh force force its hand so where where i get stuck with that renato is if we're 18 months in and the Justice Department hasn't even thought about <laughs> Trump's culpability or has, has not opened a case, I think that's we're in real trouble because beginning an investigation is like such a low threshold. It's below probable cause. It's you have information or an allegation. Let's say, let's put the for a higher standard for a president, you have facts that suggest that a violation of, of federal law may have occurred. That allows you to literally open the case and begin to gather evidence. And I feel like 
just, you know, based on that phone call that was released on January 5th uh, to the Georgia Secretary of State, then what we witnessed firsthand on television on January 6th, that there was a predication to open an investigation to see, you know, whether Trump or members of his campaign engaged in undue influence or other crimes related to the election, which led to the violence on January 6th. I mean, you know, to, to start, you know, digging a little bit. I I don't understand that gap. Like if we're at a point where they're way, you know, that it's gonna take a criminal referral from the Justice Department and they're gonna start an investigation in, and I'm checking my watch now, July, August of 2022. I mean, that investigation PS is not gonna be complete for another 18 months at least. I mean, I don't even know where we go with this. Am I like, am I missing something? I don't think you're missing something. I mean, I think the question is, and I think, I think um, it's something we can't know is why didn't the Justice Department do this, right? I mean, as you point out, it's a pretty low bar to open an investigation. So why didn't they? I mean, my theory, my speculation, and this is purely speculation is that I suspect that the DOJ leadership was looking at what there was out there and they were thinking to themselves, this is unlikely to lead to criminal charges. It's unlikely to lead to something that we would actually consider charging and merely opening an investigation is going to be very problematic or for a whole slew of reasons, it's going to create a lot of fallout. And if we investigate, but don't, you know, don't charge, then it's going to suggest that somehow, you know, Trump was innocent or the people around him were innocent. And so we're just not going to open one. I mean, really, that is the only explanation that makes any sense to me. And I will say it's it's concerning to me on a number of levels, because I think I've always thought that the way you approach this issue of how to investigate Trump's activity and how do you potentially consider criminal charges is problematic. I think it's obviously problematic because Trump is the immediate prior past president. And it is we've never prosecuted a former president before. And it's going to be, you know, obviously be seen by Trump and his allies as political. But I think it could be seen as by the entire world as a political act. And it's very important for the legitimacy of our government and for our criminal justice system that this be done in a way that is above politics and above those sort of accusations. You know, I had literally, I think maybe four days after the election, uh, long before January 6th, I wrote a, an article or a column in Politico calling for a special counsel to be appointed. And my thought process at the time, this is before January 6th was, you had all the Mueller report stuff, which we haven't even talked about, but Mueller found, you know, that all this evidence of obstruction of justice, and he testified before Congress that, there would be enough to charge after Trump left office. Some of the statutes of, of uh, limitations have actually expired on that without any discussion by the Justice Department uh, under the Biden administration. And then, of course, there's a slew of other things that Trump did that weren't related to January 6th that a lot of people felt should be investigated. And then now, of course, we have, like, as you point out, I think it's fair to say that some of these matters uh, warrant investigation. I, I am, as you know, Ash, I'm a little bit skeptical of uh, some of the internet commentary, a lot of the internet commentary regarding some of Trump's activities. I think it's, it's uh, 
overblown and hyperbolic uh, to put it mildly, but I think there's certainly enough to take a look at this matter. And I think if you don't, I think then you're, you're in a situation where you're not kind of proceeding by the book. In other words, you know, if it's one thing for Garland to say, I'm not going to take into consideration all of this stuff that people are saying, like, you have to indict Trump to save the Republic and all that. Fine. But if you're going to just do this by the book and say, you know, th if, th if his name was John Smith, uh, I would, or John Doe, I would look at it the same way, then to me, that means that you can't just turn a blind eye to this. And I have to say, I've, I've often felt a lot of the criticism of Garland uh, on the internet and elsewhere has been unfair, but I have to say this New York Times article and some other reporting has led me to believe that I think that, that some of this, uh, this criticism is warranted. Yes, I agree. And, you know, I think it would be hugely problematic if it was, we're unlikely to bring charges, so we're not going to investigate it. Like, that's not how it works. You investigate, and there may be very good reasons that you choose not to bring charges. And it could be because there's not enough evidence. In the case of a former president, there may be institutional reasons or reasons about democratic values or whatever. Um, that's prosecutorial decision uh, discretion. But I mean, you know, I think probably it was going to be unlikely that Hillary Clinton was going to be actually charged for mishandling classified information under the circumstances that these were happening. That didn't stop them from investigating it, you know, um, and you don't know what you're going to uncover in the in the course of that investigation. I think unless your policy is the Justice Department is not going to investigate or charge any person who has held the office of the presidency, then just say it, at least let that be some kind, you know, as they have with their internal memo, um, you know, about sitting presidents, then own it. But I think to, you know, if that is what was motivating them, I think that's highly problematic. I feel like there is probably more cowardice involved um, that after what happened with the Russia investigation that, you know, they, they are afraid to do it. And I think that that is also, problematic uh, in terms of that, um, you know, if that's the reasoning. I think your special counsel idea is, is great. I thought that political piece was fantastic about uh, doing a review. Uh, I mean, there's so many charges that, you know, we can look back. There's also the campaign finance charge or, or um, you know, issue with, with Michael Cohen. There may, and we've talked about this before, that you think that there, there were good reasons to not uh, bring charges on that. But again, I think that when you're dealing with things that have happened and are so in the public domain and, and there's such public uh, knowledge and interest that the Justice Department does owe an explanation in terms of declinations to charge. And I personally think that part of why we're in the situation is that Merrick Garland should have appointed a special counsel after January 6th. I mean, he has put himself in a very difficult position because you really don't want the attorney general of one you know, party launching, I mean, just from a conceptual standpoint, like, you know, it becomes very con conflicted to then investigate a person who was a former president who's also going to be an opponent of the person who's your boss. Like, this is why the special counsel regulations exist to create uh, a buffer, to create something that, you know, is outside of the internal working or, you know, kind of day to day workings of the de Justice Department and have. Uh, a measure of independence and still have accountability and to give the public reassurance in terms of that, that something is going to be objectively investigated. And I think that was a huge mistake on Garland's part. Um, 
but which brings me to the, the the next thing that I would love to hear from you is, you know, Garland's approach has been, well, we're going to start at the bottom and work our way up. And uh, you probably know that Andrew Weissman, who is on Mueller's team, uh, recently wrote a piece and has, has given some interviews that he thinks this is the wrong approach, that he thinks that working your way up in the way you might would say an organized crime investigation um, isn't appropriate for what we're looking at here. And he said this should be looked at as more of a hub and spoke conspiracy. And I don't know if you saw my little drawing that I made because I had to map this out for myself. It actually, it's pinned on my Twitter page if anybody wants to take a look, but it, it literally looks like a hub and spoke. Um, and I'm wondering, Renato, what does that mean practically speaking? Like how, what is he saying in terms of what would have been different on how the Justice Department would have conducted this? Uh, had this, have they conceived of this as a hub and spoke? Would it change anything practically or is this just like a visual you know, thought exercise? Or, does, or is he actually saying you would have literally started from the inner circle and worked your way out? Yeah, so well, great question. So first of all, I agree that I wouldn't just do a ground up investigation in something like this. I mean, that if you're starting with the random bozos who are, you know, you know, breaking windows and, you know, storming the Capitol and trying to work your way all the way up to Donald Trump. I mean, it might take you seven years to get there uh, if you ever do. I mean, do you blow your statute of limitations? It's just a very could be a very long process to get there. And you may not because to me, what I see here, I guess I wouldn't call it a humble spoke conspiracy. I disagree with him on that. I guess the way I would look at it is there's a number of distinct potential crimes here that are in many ways disconnected from each other. And that's not unusual. I mean, when I investigated crime, I often investigated individuals who were engaging in a number of different schemes. I mean, I remember one real estate Mughal that I prosecuted who ended up with being convicted. I ended up indicting him for a number of things, uh, you know, a bank fraud, uh, a, a, a fraud against his one of his business partners, a fraud against a, a governmental entity, all of them in one kind of one case. But there was a plenty of other criminal activity that I could have charged him for. And it was essentially there's all these different things going on. And as a prosecutor, you know, one thing I learned in ex with experience over many years is, you know, when I first got when you're a junior prosecutor, like, oh, my God, there's all this stuff, you know, where do I go? And it's like what I learned over time was you have to find the things that look like very readily provable charges, like the sort of thing that is easy to prove and easy to get your your your, you know, put draw a circle around in court and work out early from there. So it's not, I'm not saying it differently. It, what my conclusion is not that different than, than his, but hub and spoke conspiracy to me suggests like there's some grand conspiracy here. And I don't really think you'll ever see anything like that here. Like one thing that I think the committee says that I think is more like pol politicians speak than anything that's legal is like, they have like their 11 part conspiracy or whatever, like that. You're never going to charge something like that. I mean, what I see here is you know, I wrote a, piece, a column recently in Politico about the about the crooked lawyers. Okay, well, you know, and as I point out, I, I there I'm like, you have like some direct false statements in federal proceedings there that you could just immediately charge and work your way out from. Like, what I would be doing if I got if this file was placed on my desk is I'd be like, okay, Clark and Eastman are liars uh, who are telling lies in documents in federal proceedings. 
let's start there and work our way out and see what comes from there. And then separately, you've got, you know, yes, you have all these hoodlums in the Capitol. Who's doing the command and control and coordination there? I would focus on those people because those are really the connective tissue between um, between the folks who are storming the Capitol and anybody above any associates of Trump. And then I would I would also be, you know, focus outward from Trump's words, just pure, you know, from an incitement perspective, which I've written about as well, because I do think whether or not you're you know, over the hump of having proof beyond a reasonable doubt or not, I think you could have a reasonable debate on that. But I think there's certainly more than enough to investigate because we know the guy was talking uh, and saying words that certainly could be interpreted interpreted to be incitement. You got a bunch of people he knew were armed uh, and were heading to the Capitol. And they, in fact, did attack, uh, violently attack people at the Capitol. So it seems to me like at least there's enough to take a look at that and all the circumstances surrounding that. And that would at least... And also this, Ray, you mentioned Raffensperger earlier. I think that 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 conversation was a bit of a word salad, much more than I think is often appreciated by folks who comment on it. But nonetheless, it certainly warrants taking a look at, although I, I know that the Fulton Downey DA is already doing so. But I think those are all kind of independent things. Like you could imagine a charge regarding the Georgia calls and all of that stuff that has nothing to do with with the storming of the Capitol right. or an incitement uh, indictment that has nothing to do with all this other stuff. To me, they're almost like freestanding independent charges, just as we saw in the Mueller investigation, a lot of folks charged with a variety of different things. Yes. And, you know, on the incitement piece in terms of just beginning the investigation, what I think is really interesting is, you know, that's what Trump was impeached for. So there was a lot of evidence that was presented that that I think more than met, you know, it wouldn't be just somebody in a back room deciding to open an investigation on incitement. I mean, you know, those are very thoughtful lawyers who put together the impeachment case, which surely met, you know, some threshold to open a criminal investigation. And to that point, I had meant to say when we were talking about, um, you know, when you said that the January 6th committee is, is working uh, as a grand jury almost, um, it made me think, and I've been thinking about, you know, that ideally all of this stuff would be coming out before, as part of his impeachment hearings, before the Senate, you know, the trial took place in the Senate, right? This is kind of, um, and you can just see how impossible it would have been to actually lay all of this out in that short period of time before he left office, which kind of, to me, just underscores, this is a very separate tangential point, but I'm just making the point that underscores that you have to be able to impeach someone after they leave office. Because if they do something like this, it is almost impossible to really put together the case, you know, that the House would have to do to, you know, bring the kind of evidence forward. And it's, it's unfortunate that we didn't have all of this evidence then, though I'm not sure it would have made a difference. Oh, one more thing that I wanted to add um, on the Eastman Clark thing. I think that's another thing where a lot of people point to, oh, you know, they're on, you know, Jeffrey Clark and Eastman. So they must be getting really, really close to Trump. And maybe I'm thinking about this wrong, Renato, but Jeffrey Clark was being investigated. First, he was referred to the Department of Justice Office of Inspector General because he was an employee who committed misconduct 
And so in a way, the OIG sort of has like original jurisdiction to like look into it. And I didn't realize this. I didn't know that the OIG could actually start a criminal investigation themselves, um, which appears to be what happened. Um, and then that has led to Jeffrey Clark. So there's sort of this investigation happening there. But to me, that is not a part of this ground up investigation. That's sort of a ancillary investigation that's happening almost from an adjacent, you know, uh, oversight entity. Um, so I'm not sure that that piece necessarily tells us how far along Garland is in his bottom up investigation. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. I think those those investigations have nothing to do with one another. Yeah, I think that's apparent to me that they're it's not apparent to a lot of people because they'll point to it and be, you know, and be like, well, that means that they're already, to, you know, they're ready to move it on Trump. I'm like, I don't think so. I think this yeah, is like coming from the side and this is not yeah, that's not a part of the natural progression of like moving up the chain necessarily from starting with, as you said, the bozos that were on on the Capitol grounds. Yeah, anyone who suggests that those two things are related is ignorant. It doesn't know what they're. I mean, I'm just I don't know who these people are. I don't want to know. But I no, that's <laughs> absolutely not true. They're they're totally separate. I agree with you 100. It, it you know it, there was a separate investigation of Clark Eastman was was his cell phone was seized pursuant to, I believe, the Clark investigation. It's just that they're exactly. potentially co-conspirators or whatever. So Eastman gets wrapped in under that. And Clark is in a lot of trouble because he, you know, he tried to pen a letter on DOJ letterhead that Correct. contained provable falsehoods. And his superiors told him he didn't have authority to pen the letter and all things in that letter were false. And he just trudges ahead anyway. And, you know, usually a thousand and one account, when I say thousand and one, what I mean is a false statement in a federal uh, proceeding you know, is usually where you lie to the FBI. But if you are, in fact, a federal employee and in the ma matter in the midst of a federal proceeding, you know, fully and willfully make a false statement in the course of that proceeding to influence that proceeding, you know, that is also a federal crime. And so I just think he's that was just really stupid. I mean, it's funny because there's that testimony that he didn't know anything about criminal law and he was not you know, fit to be AG because he didn't know anything about criminal law. He was just the oil spill guy. Um, nothing says more that this guy knew nothing about criminal law than the fact that he was like so intent on pushing forward to commit a crime. I mean, I, I only <laughs> only a fool would do what he did. Like any anybody who had any experience with criminal law would be like, yeah, I do not want to sign my name to that letter, uh, which is what it seemed like everyone else around him was doing. Uh, so it was actually quite humorous uh, yeah. that he decided to do that. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad that I'm not you know, the, that I'm conceptualizing that relationship to the overall investigation um, and that you agree with with how I see it. Um, yeah, I, I have to say, by the way, Ash, I mean, what a disconnect between how the public sees all of this and how it's really occurring inside DOJ, right? Like yeah. if you read Twitter, like Trump is guilty of everything from like manslaughter to like seditious conspiracy. And it's so easy to prove you literally could just throw some tweets in front of a jury and convict him. Right. And then the Justice Department's like, oh, my God, we're not even like talking about this guy's criminal liability, much less looking into it. So let's talk about that. Let's let's uh, do the home stretch on that. So as you said, it seems like on the spectrum of possible crimes that I've heard put out there by legal commentators, on the one end, you have Nonviolent conspiracy. So this includes uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States. This is the false elect, um, 
yeah, the the you know wanting to prevent present the the Eastman scheme that you know to present the false slate of electors and have the the votes thrown out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then there's the conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, also stemming out of these same facts and circumstances. Um, and then we start to move into uh, more of the connection to the violent aspect that happened on January 6th. So then you have insurrection um, or incitement to insurrection, so inciting this crowd. Um, and I posted uh, 18 USC 273, which is uh, as, as a potential thing, which is after the last hearing, uh, which is, I think, solicitation to uh, threaten violence, um, where basically you're exhorting someone to commit you know, a, an act of violence or use of force. Um, and then, as you said, we're, then we've had people floating out um, seditious conspiracy and even manslaughter. Um, and I'd love to see a seditious conspiracy charge, but that's a really high bar. And if you look at the case law, you know, what you need, what is required there is proof that in this case, if you're looking at Donald Trump, that he entered into a very concrete agreement to use force in order to hinder or resist the authority of the United States and that there was a specific plan that he was a part of like an agreement wouldn't be sending the rioters to the capitol like there would have to be something where they would have to get him you know some kind of conversation or so i assume or something that really ties him to a plan to use force uh against the government of the united states and i thought I thought maybe this last hearing about the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, that that's what the committee was ready to present, and they they did not meet that threshold. Um, I mean, it was very shocking, don't get me wrong, but they did not meet the threshold that you need for seditious conspiracy, and I figured if they had, if they had it, they would show it. Um, and then, you know, the manslaughter, I don't even, I'm not sure what to say about that. So that's the spectrum, and I'm curious where you fall um, in terms of plausible charges. And again, we don't know what Department of Justice has or doesn't have. I mean, all we have is what's been put out in public by the committee and what we what we have seen with our own two eyes. Right. So let, I'll just say, obviously, with that preface, that it's all based on what we know publicly. I mean, I would just say as a starting point, I think the misdemeanor stuff or the misdemeanor, excuse me, the um, the um, manslaughter uh, suggestion I thought was silly is that would be the way I would describe that. I mean, I think the idea that um, you would charge the president of the United States with, for example, as a result of a speech or, a, you know, a, a set of conversations that he, you know, ultimately people died to so you charge him with manslaughter. I, I don't think the Justice Department would ever consider that, first of all, for, as a starting point. But even if they did, I think it would be unconstitutionally vague as applied to that case because is applied to that circumstance because politicians say all sorts of things that ultimately can result in someone being injured or killed. Um, and they do all sorts of things. And we just, um, you know, you can't, we wouldn't, you don't, it's not clear from that statute that it is intended to prevent that sort of activity. And criminal statutes have to be crystal clear as to the criminal activity that they're intended to present to prevent. There's also broader constitutional concerns with that. I just think that there's no way the Justice Department's going to go there. Okay, you could imagine, by the way, lots of presidents. If if you're going to go through that, do that route, a lot of presidents potentially being charged with manslaughter. I don't see that happening. 
I think, you know, seditious conspiracy, I agree with you um, that that is that is conceivable, but unlikely and, and certainly not supported by the facts that we have. In other words, for seditious conspiracy, you would need some very deep connection and agreement between Donald Trump and the people who are organizing the attack on the Capitol and, and their planning and operations. And we don't have anything like that. I mean, what we're seeing from the committee, I think, to your point, is like they'll say, well, he tweeted this and then this happened. That's interesting. And it's certainly true. And, you know, that's the case. That is the case. But, you know, the fact that you tweet something and then people go off and do something as a result of that um, is is never going to be the basis of a conspiracy charge. I don't have an agreement with my hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers as to what they're going to do. Um, if I if I tweet something and somebody does something, if they uh, if they're so mad at Ted Cruz that they attack him, that is not an agreement between me and them to do that. I, I just think that that's very, uh, very, um, very um, uh, unreal, uh, uh, far afield. Now, some of the other stuff you mentioned, a lot of other potential criminal charges. So, so I, I will just, I'll start with one since I've been so negative on him. I'll start with one that I am more bullish on than most, which is incitement. And the only reason that I'm more, I'm bullish on that one is because that's the only one that I see publicly that there's no proof problems. It's a legal problem. Here's what I mean by that. Like everyone knows that Donald Trump gave a speech. Everyone knows that the, that the people in who listened to that speech proceeded to march to the Capitol and violently attack people. So like, there's no dispute as to most of the facts there. Now there may be, there, there certainly are portions of the speech that Trump can point to because there's it, like many Trump speeches, it's a bit of a word salad. But I think, you know, you have some pretty good evidence there that he said things that were intended to get these people to go over to the Capitol and convince him that he was going to be there with them and, you know, get them fired up. And we have some some testimony from Hutchinson that he actually knew those people were armed. And he said that they're not there to attack him. They're going to march to the Capitol. I think the implication being that they may be doing something violent at the Capitol. So I think there you're in the realm of being able to charge something. However, there is a First Amendment hurdle, which is very significant. And I will say that you almost never meet that bar, which is that you need to have, you know, the First Amendment broadly protects speech, particularly political speech, like the speech of a president on the at the ellipse about matters of public concern. And the only time that it's not protected and it becomes criminal incitement is when you're inciting imminent lawless action. And so I, you know, there's certainly the case that a court, uh, certainly the, the Supreme Court could could overturn a conviction. But I think and I, I think for that reason, the Justice Department might, might often want to shy away from that, thinking that their conviction would be overturned. But I do see the evidence there. For the can, rest I, can, of the I, can we pause right there? Because sure. I'm team incitement also. And for me, I think that the evidence that has been presented from between Hutchinson's testimony and up to the last uh, hearing about the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, to me, overcomes the First Amendment bar, the general First Amendment bar of we're not we're not just basing this on th that speech alone, that there was like a premeditation, there was a plan, a methodical plan that that was laid out from, you know, this is where that that tweet, the call to arms comes in and the, the inflammatory language in the speech, the uh, tweeting out that Mike Pence was on board, even though he knew he was not to kind of get 
the hopes and expectations of this crowd up, wanting them to, knowing that they're armed and wanting them to remain armed as he's in the ellipse um, and then sending them off. And then of course, after that, to fan the flames, tweeting that Mike Pence is a coward and then PS wanting to join them there afterwards. Um, you know, to me, like, you know, there's a lot more action beyond just the speech itself. And then, as you said, the two-prong test of speech that's directed at lawless action and likely to produce imminent and lawless action, I think it can meet that bar. But more, more than that, Renato, I think that it's, that to me is a good charge because it hit, it, it, it encapsulates what people saw with their own eyes and ears that day. They can get their minds around it. This is not some the scheme that was being plotted behind the scenes that they have to believe, you know, or it doesn't depend on whether or not you believe Trump won the election or not. It's, you know, the use of force against a Congress, we all saw it happen. And I think also it's the only crime that has as one of its penalties, a prohibition from holding public office again. And so I think if you're really trying to address from you know, the punishment standpoint, something that actually fits the severity of the crime, I think that this is something that really encapsulates it all. And I think it, as a charge that's being brought for the first time against a former president, it's something that is such a high bar to meet that it's hard to then weaponize it it become a precedent to weaponize against other presidents in the future. Like, oh, I'm going to charge Biden with incitement. I mean, you, you can't do, you know, it's a very high bar as, a, as opposed to bad faith arguments that Biden is also obstructing Congress or something like that, you know, um, which, you know, not necessarily that those would hold up in actual court, but I'm talking about bad faith claims being made. So I think there are a lot of good reasons that that is a charge that should be taken seriously. And especially because I think it can get, more buy-in across a huge swath of American people, because I think very few people would disagree that inciting a lunatic armed mob to go and, you know, storm the Capitol and potentially kill the vice president is bad. You know, before we proceed to any other potential criminal charges, some of the other ones you had listed, I do want to just say, Asha, one thing you said there is very important is this idea of the precedent you said and line drawing and so on. You know, you notice when I talked about um, about potential um, um, uh, manslaughter charges, I'm like, look how this could be done, you know, abused in other contexts. One thing that, you know, I, I get a lot of stuff from Twitter commentators where I'm like, well, actually, you have to prove this and that and this and that beyond a reasonable doubt. You have to prove a knowledge or intent for this statute. And they're like, oh, man, this is worthless. The law shouldn't be that way. Everyone should just, you know, if you did this, you go to prison. And it's, you know, the reality is, first of all, I don't know if many of you would actually want to live in a world in which prosecutors just decide, okay, you're going to prison and we don't really have to prove all this stuff because I will just say as somebody who not only was a prosecutor for a long time, but is now a criminal defense attorney, not all prosecutors are reasonable. They often abuse their authority. And we could admit, you could admit, you know, if you, if you're on the, uh, you know, as many of my listeners are on the other side of the spectrum, think about AOC being the target of the next uh, re uh, Republican administration and, you know, or, you know, somebody else, some other, a person that you would admire or would think should be protected or, you know, for example, you know, abortion doctors suddenly being targeted or, or things like that. So I do think 
you know, it is important to think about the precedential value and where you draw lines. Another thing that's important to always that prosecutors think about, and I always thought about every prosecutor thinks about when you're charging is, does this charge fit the conduct? Does this, what I'm charging fit what this person did? And one of the things I like about incitement is it perfectly fits what Trump did that day, which is a lot of talk that was meant to rile up people to do something crazy and violent and it did and so i just think it really fits i do want to say that another thing about it is it it does sidestep a lot of the the difficult <clears throat> proof problems that other uh of the the char the the um charges that we've discussed have in other words the ones we haven't gotten to yet are some charges that are very often discussed and are that are plausible involving the um for example conspiracy to defraud the united states or conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding or just straight up obstruction of an official proceeding and both of those have you know elements of proving someone's state of mind beyond a reasonable doubt in the case of a conspiracy to defraud fraud requires dishonesty um and it, it, you have to prove some an intent to defraud so you know there whether or not trump had you know believed that he was doing something dishonest is part of the equation there and i know a lot of you listening to this are like oh come on uh you know renato you you can obviously prove that this guy was dishonest he's the most dishonest politician we've had but you have to remember in a courtroom where everything is sort of presented in a very sanitized way with you know what is you know what is in evidence or not in evidence i will say trump certainly was trying to convince people that he had uh that he really believed the election was stolen and he lived in a, you know he may have been living in his own la la land but he certainly was someone who acted like he was buying his own bs and on you have an additional problem there where he was being advised by well-credentialed lawyers to do this stuff and so there's a whole element there where he's gonna point to people like eastman and clark and say hey these these top lawyers were telling me that you know our, everything i was doing was a-okay and i know there are lawyers that that gave him different advice but he's gonna say i found them more compelling than the other lawyers and i will just say as somebody who's practiced and tried a lot of criminal cases that it's very rare to have criminal cases where you have uh, a legit lawyer uh, who is telling the criminal defendant that what they're doing is a-okay. It's very rare. Uh, and because the, you know, prosecutors, federal prosecutors do not like to charge those, would not like to charge those cases because that's just very complicated. Um, I've charged and convicted lawyers. Um, it's hard to convict them. Uh, Clark or Eastman might be an exception, but convicting the people that they were advising um, is, is, is a challenge. So I just think that presents a challenge here. And by the way, I should say, obstruction of official proceeding requires corrupt intent, which is very similar uh, in terms of its mental state required. So I just think, I think those are complicated. I'm not saying they can't be be achieved, um, but I just think that they're not the obvious slam dunk that, that people often think they are. I'm glad you're saying that, Renato, because I think that those are the two that have been really, really pushed hard. And I, I felt intuitively that those, the, the intent requirements there are more problematic than at least some commentators have suggested and more more so i think also to your point i mean i'm not sure if you really feel like those crimes directly fit the conduct i mean they do I, the, there was a conspiracy to obstruct congress um there was a conspiracy to defraud the united states i feel though that from a public standpoint 
they're just kind of, it's kind of complicated because you have to kind of get into this Eastman scheme, which is, you know, wacky and, um, you know, all the, the involving the false electors. And sometimes I think, and I think especially if you're going to charge a former president, I don't know that you really want to get into all kinds of, you know, schemes that were happening behind the scenes that are easy to create conspiratorial like narratives that, oh, they're making this up or, you know, it's, it's harder to create the witch hunt narrative, as you said, with something that literally we saw happen. And uh, quite apart from, you know, it, the precedent that it set, I think people can just get their minds around it. And I think you want something that there is a, a lot of public buy-in uh, that the, we, we get why this guy is being charged with this, you know, and we understand exactly what he did wrong where I think you could get into some rabbit holes with the other with the other stuff. And I'll just add, Renato, that the fact that we're talking about all these different statutes, how you know, which one actually fits the conduct, I think part of the problem is that the federal criminal code is not really designed to prosecute a former president for stuff that he does while in office, because you know, the, the criminal code is written for your average person. And much of what makes Donald Trump's actions criminal, like in this whole time in office, like is that it's because it's the president who's doing it. Like when the president fires the, the FBI director for, you know, investigating him, when, you know, he's uh, paying off people to stay silent or when he's, you know, mishandling classified documents and trying to take them. I mean, all these things are problematic. They're problematic in any context, but they're especially dangerous when it's the president. And I think this is why we have the impeachment process because sometimes the criminal code can be trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Um, and especially because there's often novel constitutional defenses that the president can bring up um, that make prosecution difficult. There's the you know, perception of uh, political motivation that comes with the DOJ pursuing these. There's all kinds of problems. And I just think it's important to point out why it highlights the importance of the impeachment process. Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, I think many of the things Trump did in office, our criminal code was not intended to pre to pre to prevent and our criminal code was not written to prohibit. And I do think that folks sometimes have a, a expectation that every bad thing is going to result immediately in someone going to prison. And that is not how the real world works. There's lots of shades of gray in between um, something that, you know, you know, technically violates something and might result in you know, a fine or even less than that. And, you know, or maybe nothing at all uh, versus something that sends someone to prison. Um, and in, some of the things that Trump did were in, in office were awful. Some of the worst things he did actually in, in office were really awful, but were nowhere near being criminal just because our criminal code was not written in a way to capture those activities. You know, I will say that, you know, with, with a lot of this stuff, you know, you were mentioning, for example, the we we're talking in the beginning, you were talking about conspiracy to fraud the United States and the obstruction of official proceeding. I think, you know, just one thing that happens a lot of times is you know, you'll hear these things thrown out in a tweet, but just think about what that trial would look like for a second. If you just charged one of those crimes and you went to trial, the, the charge is that, that John Eastman came up with the scheme that said the vice president, it would, it would be constitutional for the vice president to do X instead of Y at the accounting, right? To reject certain votes and send them back to the state electoral votes and send it back to the states or whatever. Now, 
I agree with all the, I mean, I, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but all of the testimony of the folks around Pence, including Judge Ludig, who were advising him that that was total bunk, uh, were very persuasive. And I know that Eastman privately told him it would be a loser 9-0 in the Supreme Court, but there's no evidence he told Trump of that. And so really what you have is a lawyer who was a Supreme Court clerk and a law professor telling the president, hey, there's this authority that the vice president has, you should convince him to do it. And Trump gets on the phone or has me and has meetings with Pence and tries to convince him to do it. And when Pence doesn't do it, you know, he sends off angry tweets and do the, does all this other stuff that might be criminal, like uh, incitement for other reasons, but wouldn't be part of this trial. It would just be okay. He tried to convince Pence to do it and Pence didn't do it. And it's like, well, what kind of trial is that? And I, I just think that even as to Eastman and as to um, uh, Clark, I think the most obvious charge is actually like a, a false statement in a federal proceeding. I think it's much more straightforward and easy to prove. I know that there is a judge who made a finding in the context of determining whether certain evidence need to be produced to Congress, that it's more likely than not that a crime was committed but you have to understand it's one thing for a judge to make a finding on a preponderance in other words, 51% of the evidence based on just the judge and what he saw in papers. It's another thing in a criminal trial where you're gonna have rules of evidence, proving beyond a reasonable doubt to 12 random people off the street unanimously and getting all of them agree that Donald Trump, the president of the United States committed a crime by trying to convince Pence uh, unsuccessfully trying to convince Pence to send back electoral votes. I just think that is very difficult. It's a challenge. All of these will have challenges. And I think maybe for a future episode, we should get into the next step after this, if, if anything were to come to pass and, you know, maybe it's too speculative, but all of the considerations that Merrick Garland would have to take into account beyond the sufficiency of the evidence in terms of deciding whether to bring charges against Trump. I agree. And, and I think I, I do. I will say this. I mean, I think hopefully from this conversation, I know for some of you, you're going to be like, this is depressing. It's not. I mean, I'm somebody who, you know, I I think that there it, not only should there be a criminal investigation, but I actually think the the DOJ should consider charging Trump with incitement. But I will say you can understand hopefully a little bit why Garland and people around him may approach this cautiously. I think for me, Asha, you know, for me, there's a difference between caution and basically just sort of saying, I'm not even going to address the issue. And I think the public deserves, at the very least, a close look at this and then a, a decision one way or the other so that there's transparency uh, about this. And so the public knows that the Justice Department's looking at this and has done its job. 100%. Well, we agree on that. And look, it's been great to talk to you, Asha. We'll be back after, you know, in the, uh, you know, in the upcoming weeks, we'll be back. And I'm interested in everyone's feedback regarding what you thought of this episode and more importantly, what you think uh, on topic should look like in the future. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast. Go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 